Well, well, welcome to Black Men Speak. I'm your host, Keith Dent. And for those of you who've never tuned in, if this is your first time, welcome. Uh, Black Men Speak is a podcast that highlights extraordinary, ordinary men doing extraordinary things. And um, this tonight, this is our last show of the 2021 season. And so, and I'm glad. I'm glad because, um, you know, one of the goals that I had, uh, you know, for those of you that, that set goals and do those sort of things at the beginning of the year, um, my first goal that I had was to interview a celebrity. Um, because it kind of has a sign of a gr- sign of growth, you know, stretching on my part because one, you, you got to reach out to them and, and, uh, and try to get on their calendar, see if they're busy. Um, and, uh, but my guest tonight, I never thought, you know, the celebrity that we're going to have on tonight would be one of the heroes of the work that is kind of the inspiration behind this podcast in the first place. And his name is Sean Dove. Now, for those who might not have heard his name, um, you know, Sean Dove, he's the founder of the Corporation for Black Male Achievement. Uh, it's a consulting and publishing enterprise that creates community building and leadership development engagements that elevate stories of loving, learning, and leading for black men and boys. Uh, he, he served on the CEO for the, also for the campaign uh, for Black Male Achievement, and which was a national intermer- intermediary membership organization committed to ensuring growth, impact, and sustainability of leaders and organizations committed to improving the life outcomes for black men and boys and launched at the Open Society Foundation. Uh, it's eventually spun off into an independent entity back in 2015. He's leveraged more than $212 million in national and local funds while connecting cross-sector leaders and organizations on behalf of an emerging EMA field. Um, so tonight we're going to just talk about his journey, um, and also he's an author of a new book called I to America, along with his co-writer Nick Childs, uh, and it's I to M America on loving and leading black men and boys. It's, a it's part memoir, it's part historical account of the launch of the campaign for black male achievement, and, um, it's also a manifesto where we go from here um, but before you know we get into that I just want to kind of give a brief a brief background on um, his journey my name is Sean Dove and I'm the chief executive officer of the campaign for black male achievement I think I've been prepared for this work since I was born I didn't grow up with my dad never woke up one day to say good morning to my father my mother was a single mom and around that time, I began to hang out in the streets. I grew up in a drug culture. I was getting deeper and deeper into my addiction. One of my best friends said, there's this youth program, they're giving away uniforms and sneakers for their basketball team. And it was called the Dome Project. Their executive director was a man named John Simon. And I remember one day he said to me, you have potential, Sean. If you spend less time on the corner of 80th Street and Amsterdam Avenue, you can do things. I came to learn that the right word from the right person at the right time can have a transformational impact. Hey, Sean. 
Hey, what's going on, brother Keith? How happy are you? To be here, man. I'm happy to be here. Uh, thrilled to. We've been trying to do this for uh, a little bit, and um, I'm just glad that we're doing it. And as we were sharing uh, backstage, uh, there were no coincidences. All is in divine order, and uh, uh, happy to be your last uh, episode for the year. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you for being here. Yeah, we have been, been trying to do this for a minute. Um, and that, that was just those couple of seconds was pretty powerful. Um, because something simple as growing good morning, not hearing good morning from your father, how, how much of an impact did that have in just in your journey? Yeah. You know, that's a, a great question. And, um, before I even begin to answer that, man, I just wanted just to shout you out and commend you. Uh, one of my uh, personal mission mantras is that uh, we have to become masters of our own media, right? And tell our own story, own media, and 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 shape the narrative. And so Black Men Speak and what you're doing uh, uh, personifies that, right? And so that's a, a, it's a significant, you know, uh, a thing because I think we are all wired, uh, human beings, right, uh, to have a connection uh, with their parents and with their father. And so it was not a, pre you know, I didn't feel like when I was growing up, where's my father, where's my father? I had some limited contact uh, uh, with him. Uh, my mother and father were never married. And so, uh, you know, I never had that experience of uh, waking up and saying, uh, hello, dad. And, but that father hunger uh, still exists, right? And it mm. simmers, right? And I have to just, you know, commend uh, my mom, Deanna, uh, never said one bad word about my dad, right? Very intentional about me forming my own opinions, right? But let me tell you when this really resonated, uh, this whole notion of not growing up with my father and this emotions and feelings behind this, right? So I'm a father. Right, I'm father of four uh, oh, okay. twin boys, Cameron and Caleb, who are now nine. Uh, Nia, my oldest daughter, is 26, and Maya is 25. Uh, many years, well, several years ago, uh, my sons were about maybe three, um, four at the most. It was a thunderstorm in the middle of the night, around two o'clock in the morning. And my firstborn son, Cameron, the first twin to uh, hit the scene, is calling my name because he's scared. The thunder woke him up and he's uh, calling, uh, Daddy, Daddy. Two o'clock in the morning, I'm like, God, how come he's not calling his mother? Why is he not calling mom? So he's calling me and, you know, I was like, okay, is he going to go back to sleep? He was not going back to sleep. So I got up and I went into uh, their room. Uh, Caleb, you know, slept through. Uh, and he's always been that way. Uh, he just slept through it and spent some time just uh, ushering and praying Cameron back to sleep. Right? And I went back to my room and I laid down and it hit me. I was like, wow, I wonder what that is like to call for your father in the middle of the night and he's there and he comes. 
And as I was going back to sleep, I said, Sean, you may not have had that experience, right? Um, however, you are here for your children and you are present for, uh, for them. And fatherhood has been the most rewarding and challenging uh, experience uh, of my life. But uh, so, yeah, that is the thing. And I've had opportunity to uh, get to know my father. Um, we've had uh, conversations. Uh, and he was telling me a story about, uh, so he did eventually get married. I have a half-twin brother and half-twin sister. Mm. Uh, that marriage did not uh, alas. But he was telling me a story when he left that marriage and his family. And he shared and he said he felt the walls were closing in on him and he left. And ironically, serendipitously, and almost on a really eerie level, at that same season, I had a conversation with my late father-in-law who passed away in 2004 um, from prostate cancer. And he used the same exact phraseology when he talked about when he left his family, mm. the walls closing in. I was like, wow. And Keith, what I became grateful for was that I've grown up and I have come of age uh, in a season and generation where black men um, are able to get vulnerable and ask for help. Uh, because there have been seasons and times when I felt the walls have been closing in on me. But I have a community. I have therapy. Uh, I have a, a, a level of support. And my father and my father-in-law grew up in an era when it was not okay to say I need help. It was not okay to say the walls are closing in on me. I want to stay. I don't know what to do in seeking mm. help. They had to like white knuckle emotionally and psychologically. Um, and um, many left, right? And so um, that whole thread just made me grateful that uh, I have come of age in an era where um, black men speak. And we don't only not just speak about the game, the cars, a uh, 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 love interest, sex, but we also speak about our feelings. We also speak about our fears and our aspirations and the ability to uh, uh, go to another brother and uh, drop the mask, right? And we have a ways to go with that, but I think the uh, pandemic has accelerated Black men's ability and willingness to raise their hand and say, I need help, especially right. in our mental health and well-being. Right. Great. Yeah. And we're going to get into that a little bit more. Uh, and you mentioned the, your first mantra, but I thought this one was also quite um, telling because when I looked on your website, the first thing that popped up was there is no Calvary coming to save the day. So, I mean, that really hit me. I was like, oh, okay, what, what is, what's, what's Brother Sean trying to say? So expand upon that a little. What do, you, what do you mean by that? Sure, sure. And what I'll first do is I'll, um, 
expand on the entire mantra, right? Because okay. uh, the entire mantra, uh, I can't talk about it without giving it all, right? So there's no cavalry coming uh, to save the day in our communities. We are the iconic leaders that we have been waiting for, curators of the change that we're seeking to see. And what I mean by that is that everyone has the capacity to lead in some way. Too often, we passively wait for someone else to step up and come in and save the day, whether it's government, right? Uh, or whether it's philanthropy or whether it's someone outside of ourselves. And so that rallying cry that there's no cavalry coming uh, inherent in that is that we are the cavalry, right? Mm. We are the cavalry. And I've experienced that all through my life, just the whole notion of community building. And we were talking about uh, ordinary men, ordinary black men doing extraordinary things and stepping up, right? And, you know, when I say that we are the iconic leaders that we are uh, 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 waiting for and, you know, the civil rights movement and black power movement and the iconic leaders from uh, Martin Luther King Jr. to Malcolm X uh, to Kwame Ture, uh, uh, Angela Day, you know, many, right? Right. That seemed like so far away, right? But we got a Malcolm in us, right? We got an Angela Davis in us. And that's what I mean when I say we are the iconic leaders that we have been waiting for. And that last piece right after this, the semicolon, the curators of the change that we're seeking to see, inherent in that piece of the mantra is that, you know what? We have everything we need. You know, when you think of a curator, right? Uh, the curator has the resources, has the art, and is just aligning things in formation and what room and what wall. And too often, what I've discovered as a leader, uh, uh, Keith, is that, you know, I got to stop looking outside for external and extrinsic validation as a leader and look inside for intrinsic, uh, 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 internal uh, validation. And God has told me in my own personal leadership uh, journey, uh, he says, uh, Negro, and that's how God talks to me. <laughs> uh, my God, don't ask me for nary another new idea. You curate all that I've downloaded in you over all the years, and then then you come see me, right? And so that curation thing is that, you know, one of my mentors many years ago, um, Reverend Alfonso Wyatt, uh, in a moment of um, uh, despair and struggle, and and uh, uh, you know, I was leading an organization, and outside, you know, things looking fine, uh, he said to me, "You don't know how powerful you are." And he meant that not in a way of hubris and, and, right. and an ego, uh, but why are you giving your power away, Sean? Do you know how gifted and how favored you are? And you know, one another one of my mantras is that we are uh, infinitely more 
favored, then we are flawed. And the side of the equation mm -hmm. that we focus on is what grows. And what I'm hoping that uh, iTunes America on loving and leading black men and boys, which elevates in, in, in all vulnerability and transparency, both my favored side and my flaws, that you know, two things could be true. And two things are true uh, as black men. Yes, we are favored, but we're human and we're flawed, right? And right. so, but we're infinitely more favored than we are of flawed. And so that's what that mantra means. Right? Okay. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, that's powerful, very powerful, especially the fact that you you said that that you mentioned you gave your power away. Um, and, I mean, we may hold on to that thought, but you know, you mentioned the book, and uh, very, very great book, by the way. I, I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed the fact that you were ve you were very honest and vulnerable. So, what what made you felt that you needed to write the book at this time, as opposed to maybe a few years ago, or uh, even in the future? Yeah, yeah. Time is everything, and uh, actually, did attempt to write. Uh, this book or a portion of this book back in 2014. Um, and it was at the time called uh, The Summer Between the Verdict and the Speech. And uh, the summer of July 2013, in that first week, um, uh, George Zimmerman was acquitted for the murder of uh, Trayvon Martin, right? And a week later, uh, President Barack Obama uh, made an infamous speech and uh, said some things that uh, uh, many Black folks in the country, and particularly Black men, were waiting. And he challenged the nation to uh, shift its perception of Black men so that we feel a sense of love, safety, and belonging, right? And that's not his exact words, but that's what I heard. And uh, and was working with a brother, uh, Joshua uh, Dubois, on that, but it just was not time. Mm. You know, one of the quotes in the book is in the beginning of uh, the afterword is from uh, Maya Angelou. And she says, you know, there is not, no greater agony than having a story inside of you that goes untold. And so the timing, and we started uh, writing this book in uh, 2019, and so much happened before we gave birth to it, right? The campaign, sunset operations, global once in a century, uh, a, a pandemic. I myself went on a journey of deeper healing. Mm -hmm. And so it was just time. And, 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 and writing and speaking have long been a healing tool, right? I've been, I've published uh, a newspaper called Proud Papa for African-American fathers. I published Harlem Overheard, a youth-produced newspaper went out with the Harlem Children's Own and other publishing projects, right? And so that has always been my ethos and part of how I express myself. Mm -hmm. But it was just, um, it was just time. Another, uh, you may have uh, heard the, the Gnostic Gospel of St. Thomas uh, scripture that says, if you bring forth what is inside of you, it will save you. If you don't bring forth what is inside of you, it will destroy you, right? And so the right, writing and birthing of this book was really uh, life-saving, um, life-giving uh, endeavor. And so uh, 
that's why, um, you know, it was like now was the right time. Yeah, I like that. that. I guess that's maybe I needed saving. That's why I brought forth this podcast. <laughs> I'll have to think about that. That's that's kind of deep. Um, so you know uh, I know you're going to answer a question. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, go ahead. You just said that, uh, and I write about this in the book, of course, but what I want, and you just uh, affirmed it, brothers, black men, all folks to know that we can be catalysts to our own healing. Right. And when you just said that, wow, that's why you created uh, this podcast. Right. I felt that. Right. And so uh, you were wondering, I want to say yes. (laughs) It was right. It it, it was it helped to save you. And as you are, are helping to save yourself, somebody I guarantee has listened to black men speak that was on the edge that was feeling hopeless, was feeling despair, and heard something that you said or one of your guests said, and it helped save them. Right, right. And so just in your travels and just in your journey, do and it's probably probably for young, more younger people, do they do they feel that they they can't save themselves? Wow. So that's um a two-sided answer to that question. Okay. Right. So, uh, and yeah, before you answer, because I know that you, because I'm going to bring it into another question, because you had mentioned that it's imperative for black boys to have meaningful relationship with adults, especially in school. So, do do young people feel that that they can't save themselves, and are they disconnected from? adults, especially black men, older black men, and just the community? Yeah. Uh, I would say too many are um, disconnected uh, from loving, caring adults. But especially in the spaces that I travel, in the network that I travel, uh, I see so many young people connected to loving, caring adults, right? Uh, David Banks in Eagle Academy, and now the next uh, chancellor of uh, New York City. I think of uh, Chris Chapman in Oakland, the founder of Kingmakers uh, of Oakland, right? And Shanti Branch. I could just, we could take up the rest Mm -hmm. of the hour of me listing, uh, naming, describing, and honoring Black men that provide cover, love, safety, belonging, accountability for our uh, young people uh, and especially our uh, uh, young, you know, our black boys. And at the same time, too many of our black children are in school systems and classrooms um, and institutions where they are not loved, they are feared, they are hated, uh, they are criminalized. Uh, there's this sense of pathology around them, right? And so the challenging thing is that all of the powerful work that I see sometimes feels like you're shooting BBs uh, at an aircraft carrier, right? Because the aircraft carrier of uh, a white supremacy and oppression and, and privilege uh, it's just that. It's like, it's huge. And so there are plenty of schools and school districts that are affirming 
I would lift up uh, Brother Ron Walker, uh, who you should have on uh, this show. He is the founder of Colesbach, the Coalition of Schools Educating Boys of Color. And it's a network of uh, 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 school administrators, educators, community activists uh, that are committed to uh, affirming educational and learning experiences for uh, black boys and young men of color. So there is a lot of positivity and we got to like get it out there. Right. Um, so it's, it's like two things are true, right? And, and there are many of our boys that are not um, being seen and not feeling the love that we may have felt. And it's not just through the teacher, right? Uh, through coaches, right? Mm. When I was uh, uh, going to elementary school in Harlem on 119th Street and Lenox Avenue, uh, you know, late 60s, uh, early 70s, there's a sense of community, right? If I strayed down to 7th Avenue, uh, which is now Adam Clayton Powell, adults were okay stepping in and saying, what you doing down here? You know you're not supposed to be down. Get your butt back to Lenox. Uh, 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 Lennox Avenue. And this was before a tweet or a text or anything. By the time right. I got a block away, my godmother knew that I had strayed where I had not strayed. It's amazing right. how that worked before <laughs> uh, cell phones were even in existence. Right. I know. And But now we're almost less connected now because with, which is, which is amazing in itself that even occurs, but. And not only less connected with each other, less connected to ourselves. Um, and mm. there has been research, and I know this is not, well, this is part of the topic, and since the advent of the smartphone, since 2007, the youth suicide, youth depression uh, has steadily been rising with mm -hmm. the increase of social media and the comparisons and cyberbullying and we got, you know, we got work to do, um, but I'm blessed to be able to uh, be in the battle. Keith, if someone would have said to me 32, a little over 32 years ago, uh, Sean, um, in 32 years from now, if we Google you, uh, your name would be synonymous with black male achievement. First of all, I said, what the heck is Google? Um, and the <laughs> second thing I would have said is like, shut up, man, and pass me the joint, right? Mm. And that I'm just grateful that I am able to make the contributions uh, that I am on behalf of our community, on behalf of our people, right? And um, you all can do something. Yeah. So, yeah, let's and, – and I know that was one of the things we talked about, but since we've kind of gone there and you mentioned it, and, and even in the clip we show that you are, you are part of the drug culture. And mentioned how, you know, was part of your life. But one of the things I don't remember, if you touched upon, you might want to expand on it. Did it take away pain? Or was it more that because it was the environment that you were in? So um, in many instances, the environment that I was in, you know, caused pain. Right. And when we mm. say pain, does not necessarily need to be like physical abuse, uh, uh, stress, right, a searching for identity. And so, uh, yes, it uh, numbed pain, it numbed insecurity, uh, it numbed 
uh, of fear um, and just the escape from reality, right? And, you know, it's a uh, very subtle thing, right? Uh, growing up in the 70s uh, and, you know, even now, right? You know, when I took my first puff of a joint at 11, 12 years old, I didn't know that that was going to turn into uh, years later me uh, grappling with an addiction to cocaine and alcohol and, and weed and wanting to kill myself. I, I had no idea. And who knows, if someone would have said that, I would have been like, yeah, 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 right. Um, and so I think that, you know, what's the James Baldwin quote that says, you know, to be Black in America and to be semi-conscious is to be in an almost constant state of rage, right? And so I did not have the tools that uh, I have now to cope with, not even cope with, to address my depression in recovery and have tools there. And one of the things that I discovered on this journey, um, and I write about this, and we, we talk about trauma. I think that we too often normalize uh, trauma in the Black community as just being part of the Black experience, right? And what do I mean by that? And um, I tell this story in the book about uh, when I traveled the New York City subways for the first time by myself at nine years old, right? And uh, I lived with my godmother in Harlem during the week and stayed with my mother in the South Bronx on the weekends. And this was a uh, uh, the Sunday after the Christmas of 1971, taking the two train down from uh, 173rd Street and Bryan Avenue to 116th Street. And on the way back, instead of getting on the uptown side to go home, I got on the downtown side, mm -hmm. which led to me getting lost and eventually getting abducted. I had a fur coat on because my godmother ran numbers with Nikki Barnes's father, Roy Barnes, and one of the hustlers thought it was uh, a good idea for me a nine-year-old Sean to uh, uh, get a fur coat for Christmas. And I survived that heroin uh, experience. And for most of my life, Keith, when I told that story, I told that story as my Harlem resiliency story, right? Mm -hmm. And the kids heard it how many times around the table. And it was not until almost 50 years later, about 48 years later, in a small uh, a leadership circle. I was on a retreat, uh, a trusted retreat. We were talking about our crucible moment. When I broke down and realized in and through my tears that two things can be true. Yes, it was your Harlem resiliency story, Sean. You exhibited a lot of resilience on that day as a nine-year-old and God protected you but it was also trauma. And it wasn't until I admitted and acknowledged that, wow, that was trauma, that so much in my life with behaviors and mindsets, I was like, oh, trust, connected to this traumatic, this traumatic uh, experience, right? Mm -hmm. And so our ability to, and that's why I'm an advocate for therapy, that therapy, I'm an advocate for therapists, 
mentors, executive coaches, right? You need all of those uh, uh, executive life coaches in your life um, because there is so much healing that we uh, as uh, black folks that uh, we have to um, practice, right? And some of it is like generational grief that we experience, right? And so uh, therapy is a big part of that, right? And getting clean and putting down uh, the drinking and drugging was the most important decision I made in my life. Well, we're glad that you did because, um, and that is traumatic. I mean, it's amazing if that would happen, if that would have happened today, it probably would have gotten a lot more notoriety or it would have been, you know, because it would have been the community and especially because it would have been more of a save story uh, and definitely would have probably taken on a much grave, much bigger. But even with that, the the trauma might not have been discussed because we'll hear the sensational stories, but mm-hmm. then the, you never get the backstory of what what happens or, you know, what how those uh, individuals turn out. So uh, the fact that you were even able to unearth unearth that trauma to move forward is really a testament just to your, really your inner work that you've done. And really quickly, um, and I want to say, you know, uh, I'll come back. Uh, I definitely want to come back from part two uh, sometime in 2022. So I'm booking, I'm booking myself. <laughs> uh, what was really important, and this is about uh, being a catalyst to your own healing. Uh, this year, um, on Easter Sunday, uh, I drove uh, from my home in Piscataway, uh, New Jersey, to the South Bronx, the building in front of the yes, building where yes. I lived as a nine-year-old with my mom. And I retraced that subway journey from 1971. And coming back, instead of getting on the downtown side where I made the mistake, right, I took pictures and took a picture of it on 116th Street and Malcolm X Boulevard, Lenox Avenue. I crossed the street and I got on the uptown side. And I was on that train platform, Big Sean with Little Sean. And I was able to tell Little Sean that that was not your fault. You made a mistake. I got you. We're okay. And I was able to get back on that train and make that trip. And so many people don't get an opportunity to reframe and go through an experience uh, like that. But uh, that was a, a, a catalytic thing that I did. And I told my therapist that, that, you know, it was on me that I wanted to do that and making that trip. I couldn't, and I didn't know it, but the book couldn't be completed until I did that. Wow. Is that because you never heard that it wasn't your fault? Yeah, no, I, I never heard that uh, it wasn't my fault, right? I always, I think, you know, I didn't ask for help. And when I got on 116th Street and the doors opened at the next stop, I was waiting to see 125th Street, but it was 110th Street. All I had to do was get off the train and, uh, you know, wait for the uptown, but I didn't know. Right. Doors closed and what seemed like an eternity, then 96th Street came. And as a nine-year-old who uh, 96th Street was like, I was a, a strange boy in a strange land, right? And uh, I wound up walking back to 116th Street, right? So I don't want to take up too much time with that particular story. But yes, you right. know, 
Um, and if it was, if I was told that it was not reaffirmed, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I messed up. It was my, and I was, I was the one that wanted to prove that I was responsible enough to take the subway by myself, right? Mm -hmm. So I failed, right? And so, uh, there's so many levels and layers to unpack with, unpack with that. And, you know, when we talk about trauma, too often, especially with black boys and black men, the question is, what's wrong with you? Right. Right. You know, what, you know, what, you know, what's up? What's wrong with you? When the empathetic and loving question that should be asked is, uh, what happened to you? And we mm. all have a what happened to you uh, a, a story, right? And black people have an eye to America. Uh, a story uh, that we have to continue to keep telling because in uh, this moment of history we are in this country, the brutality, the oppression, uh, white supremacy, the systemic oppression, um, the attempts to whitewash it, to uh, it didn't happen, right? Mm. And, And folks making critical race, you know, using the ploy of critical race theory to what little bit of black history that was being taught in uh, many schools, most schools, uh, pulling that away, right? And so we have to have these platforms, uh, black men speak. We have to have artists and, 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 and cultural translators and whether it's through writing, photography, music to tell uh, our stories and uh, the book title, you know, we borrowed from uh, the great uh, Harlem Renaissance poet Langston Hughes and his poem, I Too. And at the end of that poem, uh, he says, and uh, he talks about, uh, that's okay. Uh, one day you'll see how beautiful I am and you'll be ashamed, right? And he's talking about white America. Mm-hmm. And that was in 1926, and I think the 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 critical challenge or question is: This country is America capable of feeling shame? Right. Uh, one of the quotes I lifted up in the book is from Brene Brown. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Owning your story and loving yourself through the process is the bravest thing you will ever do, and. Uh, one of the threads and themes of the book is, is America capable of owning its story, loving itself through the process, and in fact being brave? Hold on, isn't brave one of the values, the land of the free and the home of the brave? And so we as Black people are growing and surviving and thriving in a nation that is uh, a schizophrenic and bipolar bipolar, because if you have values and aspirations uh, that you have built your life and your identity on and you default on them every day, that's um, pathology. Yeah, I think the biggest challenge is that we'd have to figure out who is America first. (laughs) And if we can't, we probably wouldn't, it would be uh, so many debates upon who we are as America before we could determine our characteristics because, you know, if I say, well, who's Sean Dove? I am a loving, a loving father. I do this, I do that. 
um, uh, in my character or I'm passionate about this, but then you, you know who you are. You at least have a front, a framework and, and which doesn't mean we don't change, of course, uh, go through different machinations as you grow. But I don't think we would even as America, its body would have even a problem just doing that part. So yeah, uh, America has an identity crisis, right? Um, and the declaration um, with the book and the title is, I too am America. Uh, as a black man whose uh, uh, ancestors built <laughs> uh, this nation, you know, our free labor. Uh, and, and so that is owning who I am. And it is my prayer that the book and my work souls a, a seed in whoever reads it, right? But especially a young black man, uh, a black boy, that uh, it souls a seed, that it uh, sparks a flame, that it uh, uh, settles an unrest when you talk about the vulner vulnerability, right? And, and, and the book is just not about me, right? We follow right. Tamare in Detroit, Romero uh, 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 in Oakland, and we tell uh, their story. Uh, but I had a brother, um, so I write about uh, being a, uh, a bedwetter when I was young. I write about how my godmother, who I know loved and cared uh, for me, uh, she put my pea-stained sheets on the fire escape that faced Lenox Avenue between 119th Street and 118th Street. And I don't know what we were playing, freeze tag, hot peas mm -hmm. and butter, so And we stopped. Kids are pointing up and, and, and pointing at my uh, pea-stained sheets and the embarrassment and shame that I felt, right? But telling that story, I was on a call with a, a brother who had read the book and he said, you know, that was my story too. I was a bedwetter, right? Mm -hmm. And this is, this is a grown man and here we are identifying with each other, right? And so someone is going to read that who has been hiding some shame from years ago and saying, wow, Sean too? And uh, the notion, you know, we tell our stories for folks to see themselves uh, in our stories, that uh, our stories, as it liberates us, uh, it can liberate others. And that was a really powerful moment for me that I said, wow, okay. For him to share that, I was proud that I wrote that, right? Because, you know, there were moments during the process, copy editors and proofreaders wow, we appreciate your vulnerability. You're so, I had to keep running back and like, damn, what did I say? What did, you know, what, what did I say? But vulnerability is a strength. Uh, vulnerability is the new sexy. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so I know, let's kind of get to a couple of other things uh, from the book. Because one of your successes that made your, made your journey important is that you work for the Harlem Children's Zone. Founder Jeffrey Canada, who's actually one of my heroes, or who I, you know, love, just for the work that he's done. And then you had mentioned, or in the book, people were expecting, expecting you to kind of take over uh, the Harlem Children's Zone after, you know, kind of the 
this as a succession plan. But then you mentioned the your relationship was a little bit on the frosty side just because of he had mentioned in the book, and I'll just kind of paraphrase mm-hmm. uh, that he didn't he didn't know that you might be interested or you had so many you're pulling in so many different directions, doing many different things. So I really wanted to know since you were really under him and you did a lot for the organization, what are some of the three things that you learned from him? Yeah. And so that was interesting uh, that um, the, the interpretation was a, a frosty uh, a, a relationship. Because I don't think I, uh, I said that, but, you know, Jeff and I have had a 30 year plus loving mentor and mentee uh, a relationship. Right. And so, uh, I, I think that being in a relationship uh, with folks over that amount of time, right? If there's no friction, there's no attraction, right? right. And uh, so in so many ways, when I came out of uh, um, drug rehab, you know, he, he, he took a chance on me, right? Mm. And so we worked together for a number of years and uh, did some amazing things and learned so much uh, 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 from uh, Jeff, right? And so you said three things that uh, sticks out, right? Yeah. Um, wow, that's kind of hard just to narrow it down to three. Um, but I would start off with his faith, his focus, and his discipline, right? And uh, I think some of that might come from him being a black belt in uh, uh, Taekwondo, mm. his level of focus and, you know, one of the things he said to me, Sean, is like faith. Uh, the funny, the, the funny thing about it is, you better have it before you uh, uh, need it, right? And I've always have admired that laser beam uh, of focus. Storytelling is a master storyteller and uh, a communicator. Um, you know, working with him for so many years, I was like, okay, this is the seventh time I'm hearing this story. But why does it feel like the first <laughs> Yeah, right. And what I saw him masterfully do, right, he's running an organization that was first Reeland Centers and Children and Families and uh, um, evolved into uh, the Harlem Children's Zone, is that he would lead and talk about the issues of child poverty, uh, educational inequity, uh, uh, economic injustice, as a whole and historically and what's happening not only in Harlem but communities across the country and then bring it into uh, how specifically uh, his work and his organization was uh, making changes, right? And that struck me because so many other folks are like, oh, this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And so his, story, his storytelling was just... Um, and. One of the other things that um, and I think we share this, the ability to navigate both the boardroom and the block, right? Right. And, and to uh, navigate, and uh, he does this in uh, uh, a really masterful way, um, you know, high net worth circles and boardrooms, but at the same time can be on 125th Street and uh, uh, Lenox Avenue, right? And being able to lead in city hall and the corner, being able to lead in boardrooms and the block, watching that, uh, that was a, a quality. So yeah, and it's interesting. I write about that conversation when 
I left the Harlem Children's Zone. And folks are like, why, you know, why are you leaving? And, you know, you're the heir apparent. And uh, Jeff and I having a lunch conversation. And um, he said, I said, well, Jeff, you, you never said that to me. And he was like, Sean, uh, you didn't know what you want, right? You didn't know if you wanted to be a publisher or a writer or a youth uh, development professional. Uh, and this is like that focus, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm more all over the place, right? And um, and he was like, no, I wasn't turning uh, uh, my agency over, right, to someone that didn't know what they uh, uh, wanted, right? And uh, so he has just... Um, and at that time, did he get it? Did he had? Did he get it right? About me not? Uh, well, not- yes. Yeah, so, so yes, and no, right? Okay. Uh, 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 and one of the things is like you know we're, we're wired differently, right? Mm. I can be both a publisher and a youth development profession. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And so. But I do think the level of focus, right, that, uh, you know, it, it takes a lot. And that was at the, we had that conversation just as Harlem Children's Own was just elevating astro- astronomically. And, um, right. And so I, um, so much of what I have managed to achieve in my life, uh, I have had folks. Uh, in my corner, right? And Muhammad Ali is like uh, my first hero. And uh, having uh, folks in my corner, like a, a Bundini Brown and uh, Angelo Dundee and uh, Freddie, the uh, uh, Ferdy Pacheco, the, the cut man, uh, for those that are not of the Muhammad Ali uh, uh, genre and era, go Google and you find out, right? And so in my leadership journey, right, and in battles, uh, you know, Jeff has been one of those uh, folks in my uh, Right. So I wanted to get to this part because since I have been in nonprofit management, um, I just, and if, you know, you, you see all the different organizations. We have so many d- different nonprofit organizations just in this country alone. Um, you, you wonder where, where folks get the funding to just do what the work mm-hmm. that they want to do. But this was kind of on page 123, and it was really talking about philanthropy. And it was um, right when you had spoken to a woman in, from Baltimore and um, about the Black Achievement Framework. And you put that, um, and then you're, I'm quoting here, this was a moment of disillusionment at OSF. And with white philanthropy, I had thought I was working in the bastion of progressivism, a risk-taking, left-leaning philanthropic organization that was committed to transformative work. But the response to Soros' proclamation made me realize that no matter where I was, the issues of race and gender were still the same. When I talked about it with people who were close to me, they essentially said, Sean, where do you think you were? What made you think this place would be different? I had to accept that there was a ceiling with white liberal progressiveness when it came to black people. That's how philanthropy works. We'll give you project funding for your next grant request, but we're not going to invest in you in a way that will bring about long-term sustainable growth and transformation. And then just kind of the last thing is, and you said, I realize that it's difficult for black leaders within philanthropic institutions to break barriers around black liberation. You're always trying to calibrate the level of blackness you can bring to the table. (laughs) 
And so <laughs> I was like, wow, that's so deep. So yeah. with that itself, how did it really cause you to shift to where you are now? Because you, you're, in essence, have created more. It's not really a nonprofit. It's, you may, it's called a corporation. So yeah. It's an LLC, the Corporation yeah. for Black Male Achievement. Right. And uh, the Campaign for Black Male Achievement. So we spun off out of Open Society Foundations in 2015. Uh, we sunset operations uh, just as the pandemic. Uh, we announced it in, on May 1st of 2020 and what i was describing uh uh keith that you read right and this is kind of like uh weird you know hearing folks like read i mean reading from a book and you know what this part here right and uh let me get used to that um it was a board meeting right so the campaign for black men achievement was originally supposed to be just a three-year initiative at the Open Society Foundation. The campaign, okay. right? And here we are, two centuries of, uh, of racial oppression, um, and we're starting a three-year campaign. And uh, for folks that don't know, Open Society Foundations is the philanthropy of George Soros, Hungarian-born hedge fund godfather, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, was the living donor. And we were in a board meeting uh, halfway through our three-year term. And it was during that meeting when he said, so we did a presentation on where uh, and how we were leading with the campaign for Black Male Achievement and our early results, that he said, I can go really deep with this, right? I can go as deep as my special fund for poverty alleviation, which was at the time a, a three, four-year, $250 million strategy to respond to the Great Recession at that time. And when he said that in the board meeting, uh, folks weren't literally falling out of uh, their chairs, but I saw facial expressions and I saw spirits falling out and saying like, wow, uh, he's about to invest how much in black people, right? This is in 2010, mm. uh, in black men and boys. And um, after that meeting, uh, there were uh, colleagues that said, uh, white colleagues, uh, well, what about fund equity, right? And because in that meeting, he uh, charged us to expand our uh, budget. He was going to scale us up. And I thought that, wow, fund equity wasn't an issue before this board meeting when mm. your budget for your issue was three times more than mine, right? Talk about, oh, now fund right. equity is an issue. Uh, and then there was someone, uh, the conversation about Baltimore. Oh, we don't think that uh, Black Male Achievement is framework that will fly in uh, Baltimore. What? Baltimore? <laughs> Come on, right? right? And so, yes, I had realized in that moment that, well, I was reminded that even in liberal progressive spaces, right, there is a threshold of how much you will be invested in, right? And I will say that uh, over the last two years or the last year, it took the death, murder, of George Floyd, right? Mm -hmm. For many philanthropies to begin to start leveling up on unrestricted grants, leveling up on investing on, in black leadership in uh, a way that they hadn't done uh, before. And, uh, you know, there's a common adage that, you know, philanthropy is not going to fund the revolution, right? Mm -hmm. And philanthropy alone is not going to make the change, right? I am reading now about the, uh, and doing some studying about the uh, Kerner Commission 
and you may know like Jelani Cobb just recently published oh, okay. the Essential Kerner Commission uh, report and uh, talks about that 1968 uh, uh, report and how the report said that you know the role of federal government, right, and cross sector leadership that you know it's not going to be just philanthropy, not just government, the private sector as as well. And so I think philanthropy has a role. But if we start also pulling back uh, uh, the, the layers, so much of the philanthropic dollars and the endowments of billions of dollars um, have been reaped and built in an exploitative manners of people of color and indigenous people uh, in the first place. And you got this billion dollar endowment um, and you're only by law required to each year give away 5% of it, right? And so, uh, you know, quite frankly, I'm still reconciling my uh, love-hate relationship with philanthropy. Mm. And one of the things that, you know, at its root, philanthropy means love of man, right? And there are a bunch of folks in the halls of philanthropy that I know that uh, love Black people and are committed to our uh, liberation, that are in strategic uh, uh, places, right? But it's a, it's, it's a battle, right? It is a continuous uh, uh, a battle. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. And so towards the end, you had, within your book launch, you had mentioned that at 58, you're still discovering new parts of yourself. So- what are those things? And what was the catalyst to you discovering those things? Wow, uh, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, Keith, if you would have asked me in my younger days, um, Sean, what do you think you would be doing when you're 58? You know, I'm 59 now. Uh, I would have said, you know, shopping for my rocking chair and looking to go on cruise control. Therapy has helped me dramatically with dealing with, you know, trust issues, right? Trusting myself. I have been in the last uh, year, what I've called an intermission phase between my second and third acts of uh, my uh, leadership journey and my life journey. And it's a three act. It's a three act play. And I hope this third act is a long, long, long one. Okay. What I'm discovering in this journey, in this moment at 58 and 59 to derive self-worth and self-validation internally, uh, intrinsically, and not relying on external validation and extrinsic uh, validation. A brother named Melvin Miller, who um, facilitated a retreat for uh, the Campaign for Black Male Achievement back in 2019, the fall of 2019, said something to me that just kind of uh, really resonated, right? That he said, he said it to the entire team, but I felt Keithy was saying it directly to my heart. He said, you have nothing to prove, only gifts to share. Mm. And that was such a freeing word. And through reflection, right? I am a reflective leader. Uh, I realized for the last... Uh, you know, 30 years up until, uh, you know, the pandemic hit, I was in this really performative, proven space. 
and proving that I was a leader, right? Especially coming out of when I went into a treatment and, and recovery, I was the executive director of a youth program that I had grew up in called the Dome Project. And when I came out and started working for Reland, which became the Harlem mm-hmm. Children's Zone and, and all the other work that I was doing, I was like, I gotta prove, I gotta prove. It was very performative based, right? Mm-hmm. And in this moment and this coming of uh, age, right? And still evolving, that mantra, I have nothing to prove, only gifts to share, learning, to be a, a, the best husband and, and, and father that I can be, right, and evolving. I've been with my wife, Desiree, for 27 years, learning and evolving that, you know, today on this day, we've never experienced this day uh, uh, together, right? And, and, and how do I become more, a more uh, empathetic uh, uh, individual? And self-awareness is the most powerful thing, right? And so... How did I get here? It's uh, been a process of uh, pain and stumbling uh, in the dark, but it's also been a process of being willing to be vulnerable and uh, 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 look in the mirror, right? And too often as uh, individuals, we want to look out the window, cast a vision. What's happening out the window? But looking in the mirror, not so much. Right. And so what has helped me is my ability and willingness to uh, be uncomfortable with uh, looking in the mirror. And yes, Sean, you got some stuff to work on, but you're also, like I said earlier in the beginning of this conversation, uh, you're infinitely more favorite than you are flawed. Right. And so that is a process of, um, you know, uh, uh, self-acceptance and gratitude, man. I'm just like so grateful, one, that I'm still here and God is using me to make a difference, right? I am like grateful uh, uh, for that. That's great. Because of what you have done, I'm actually going to end <laughs> in a different question than I normally do. Okay. Um, because I just think what you've done is powerful because I normally think what is on what is on your mind as a black man right now, but I think you've already shared all of that. So- since this is the last show of the year, I'm going to ask you, what what do you think the headline will be for Black men and boys in the year 2030? And since we want to try to start now, yeah. get there, what do Black men and boys need to start doing? Um, and, and so... I would, as answering that question, somewhat reframe it, right? Because I think that we got to do a better job of uh, amplifying the headlines of today, right? For example, you know, there's this whole discourse uh, in America of who's a patriot, right? And whose country uh, is this? Uh, black men enlist and enroll in the uh, uh, armed services more than anybody else in this country, right? And that's supposed to be like the truest sign of uh, patriotism, mm. right? We need to tell that uh, a headline. Pew Charitable Trust recently did a study that demonstrated that Black fathers, more so than any of their counterparts of any race, are more engaged with 
their uh, uh, children, right? Whether they are uh, um, custodial or non-custodial uh, fathers, right? And and we don't hear that story, right? And so we got to start with the headlines of that there are more black uh, uh, young men in college than there are in jail, right? And so I think that's that's where we start and do a better job with that, and right? And you're part of that uh, moment in what we're doing now uh, with Black Men Speak. And so uh, the, and this needs more nuance, but you know, the headline for 2030 is that, you know, black men and boys are loving, learning and leading in unprecedented levels on behalf of their families and their communities, right? Mm. And so uh, that's the headline right now. And I, I appreciate that. Uh, question because I also, you know, I, I talk about it uh, in, in the book and I believe and, you know, uh, be careful what you declare because it just might uh, appear, right? And that what I am hoping that I Too America does is uh, create platforms for Black men to tell their I Too America story. Right. Uh, we're going to create a fellowship. We're talking with an organization about launching a fellowship for young men between 18 and 25 to tell their stories. Right. And so the headline of 2030, we're writing it. Right. We're publishing right. it and we're uh, and we're owning it. Well, Sean, this was great. Um, so if anyone has any last minute Christmas gifts that they need to purchase, how can they uh, purchase your book, I2M America? Yes, yes. So uh, they can go to dovesores.com uh, forward slash book, right? And you can purchase uh, uh, the book there. Uh, it is also on uh, all, all online retailers for the national January 6th release, right? But uh, if you want to uh, purchase it and get it sooner, uh, go to dovesores.com dot com forward slash uh, a book. Yeah, everybody get get your book. I've I got mine and a few other copies that I'll be giving away. But um, this was a gift uh, that you're on tonight. And it, like you said earlier, it was no accident that we were together to to kind of close out 2021 because we are we're moving in a di different direction as, as mm -hmm. black men and boys. We're going to be loving. We're going to be leading and we're going to be learning to really transform not only just ourselves, but our communities and this country. So, Sean, thank you. Yes, if I may, I know that we're over. I just want to close with this uh, quote from Arundhati Roy, uh, the Indian novelist. Um, and she said this uh, last year at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, she said, historically, pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew. This one is no different. It is a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. And so I have been uh, embracing that quote from Arundhati Roy, uh, reimagining uh, my world anew and uh, moving through this portal uh, uh, of the pandemic. And so, uh, excited and appreciative of you, man. Thank you, Keith. No, thank you, and happy holidays and a happy new year to you. God bless, brother. What a great way to close out 2021. 
As black men, we are on the path of learning, loving, and leading ourselves and our communities. And Sean is a great example of what can happen when we focus on how we're favored and not flawed. Black Men Speak was written, produced, and edited by me, Keith Dent. You can find previous episodes of Black Men Speak on Libsyn, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And as you know, we like to end with a quote. And this one actually comes from Sean Dove's book, I Too Am America. And it goes like this. For the first time in history, the nation clearly sees more promise than peril in the life chances for black boys. Manifesting this headline is possible, but it will require increased levels of collective leadership, organized resources, and capacity building for the leaders, organizations, and networks committed to improving the life outcomes of black men and boys. It will require many intergenerational heads, hands, and hearts to shape the next wave of black male achievement work over the next decade. It will require a racial reconciliation that can only happen when America consistently remembers and reconciles its shameful history of white supremacy and racial oppression. This uncomfortable rumbling within the soul of consciousness is what is required for us together to truthfully realize the racial reckoning that so many prematurely declared during the racial justice protests of 2020. This is Keith Dent from the Black Men Speak podcast. Peace.